0: Hey, you made it, that's great. Look, I know you've seen all of the NFT promotions on social media as well. And from my perspective, there definitely seems to be some business opportunities there. But it's always great to use an academic lens to evaluate an opportunity before diving into it. So today we invited Professor of Finance, Lena Larkin, to join our conversation. Lena is a researcher and thought leader at Schulich School of Business She analyzes the crypto NFT space, as well as other important developments in finance, and incorporates these findings into her teaching practice. So get ready for a real master's class in NFTs. Oh, I think Lena is ready to get started.
1: Lena Larkin. I'm am uh, an associate professor of uh, finance at Schulich School of Business. Uh, I have been here at Schulich for about uh, six years. And my interest, okay. uh, and I specialize in doing research in finance. This, uh, this, uh, this is my primary interest. I became interested in finance during my undergrad, uh, which was surprisingly in psychology. I double majored in psychology and economics, uh, thinking that I will be a psychologist and somehow throughout the degree, I got less interested in psychology and more interested in economics. However, mm-hmm. what was lacking was a little bit of a application angle. I really liked the models. I really liked the theories, but I didn't really see how it applies to the real world. And okay. what came, came handy to me was the internship that I did. And um, so well, uh, sorry for sidetrack. Maybe I should have provided some background information about myself. I'm a, i am uh, I was born in Russia, hence the accent. Uh, however, my okay. family is of Jewish background. And as a result, we eventually immigrated to Israel. So to mm-hmm. make it sort of related to our diverse audience, I would say other mm-hmm. notable people, Jewish people <laughs> from Russia mm-hmm. would include uh, Sergey Brin, the co-founder of Google. Uh, actresses Mila Kunis and uh, Natalie Portman, as well oh. as a famous professor, Harvard professor of finance, Andrei Schleifer. So this nice. is just some Thank people you might have heard about and they have similar background uh, to mine. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, that's sure. True. Okay, so going back to my uh, to my undergrad degree, uh, I got an internship at the Bank of Israel, which is the central bank. And uh, I worked in a unit that specialized in analyzing Foreign exchange derivatives and foreign exchange derivatives is, is a big area in finance. And I immediately saw how it applies, how people can hedge the currency risk, which back then was uh, quite severe uh, and actually make actual, uh, actual decisions. For example, back, uh, back then uh, in Israel, in the housing market in Israel, because the local currency was volatile, housing prices were listed in dollars. So if you, Close in a house. Uh, it takes a few months since then uh, since the deal settles. Throughout this time period, currency can move against you, and you you will end up paying more. So hedging mm. such risk of a transaction that you sort of that's uh, you, you sort of already agreed on with let's say uh, currency derivatives can help you a lot. And this what makes 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 the finance world so interesting to me. And as a result, for my second degree. So I have an MBA and a master's in financial economics and finance. I decided okay. to focus in particularly on financial economics and finance. So this is how I ended up in this world. Uh, now, after I have graduated, what I did is was what probably most of your listeners have done is uh, try to find a dream job in the industry. Uh, and I was lucky enough to land a job of financial analyst's in one of the mutual funds management companies in Israel. Uh, I worked there for a few years, and then I got an opportunity to go to, uh, to, go to the World Bank in Washington, D.C., where I did somewhat similar work, but uh, with managing hedge funds. So I was helping the pension plan of the World Bank to manage hedge funds, and I was analyzing those. And what was interesting is probably this is where I hope uh, I will draw some parallels to what, uh, what your audience may think. Uh, even though I had my dream job, I was in the Washington DC. I was in the middle of the world. I was—I uh, had all resources available to me. I felt after some times that even though I have learned a lot, things are becoming somewhat repetitive. You are still meeting right. new people. You are still analyzing new uh, new funds, new trading strategy, and so on. But still, it becomes sort of a bit of a repetitive task. You're still your, your analysis is somewhat the same. Uh, You need to produce a lot of reports, which are also sort of the same. And this repetitiveness has uh, let me think about whether this is what I really want to do. And I realized that what I want to do is actually do something that I truly, truly love. And this is what I truly, truly, uh, to do things that I truly believe in and deeply interest me. And I nice. think that this may be a point that other entrepreneurs relate to, because I do have friends that have become entrepreneurs after actually uh, establishing a successful career somewhere in investment banking, uh, in high tech and so on. It's just that yeah. someday they decide that this framework, this repetitive fr- framework is not for them and they want to do something that they're passionate about. That's what happened to me. Uh, maybe with maybe with the difference that what I was passionate about was research. What I wanted to do is rather than set up my own business, mm-hmm. I, I wanted to set up my, my own research problems and try to dig deep into that and provide answers that hopefully other people will find helpful. Like so it. this is what I ended up doing. I ended up uh, joining a PhD program in finance at Cornell University. And uh, after that, I have joined the academic world first as a professor at Penn State University in U.S. and later on here at at Schulich. So this is essentially what I do. If you think about it, my research projects are my little startup companies. I think (laughs) of a question, I try to find a niche that people did not think about it, but the solution or the answer will be helpful. And I try to get it going. If it's... uh, uh, Maybe another difference is that the success, I guess, in the world of entrepreneurs is measured in dollars. In my case, it's, it's, it's more of a non-monetary reward. I end up publishing mm-hmm. it, uh, hopefully, in journal, receiving citations, releasing interests from my media, people like you. So this way I can yeah. disseminate my research going forward, and this is what gives it the true value. So this That's is great. a few words about myself.
0: Yeah, thank you for for the introduction, Lena. I I, I love the way that you've been able to to marry, or at least use that analogy for uh, entrepreneurship and research. Uh, And I I think you're correct. A lot of the entrepreneurs, especially the persons in the audience, are trying to figure out ways to sort of break away from what's traditionally being done in their lives. You know, they probably have their nine to five, but after five, um, they they start getting into the things that they really enjoy and that they're passionate about, and, and trying trying to uh, build those companies out as best as they can. So I'm, I'm I'm sure they they'll appreciate knowing that you're doing the same thing, just from a research perspective rather than um a business you know dollars and cents perspective. Absolutely. Thank you for that, for sharing that introduction. So actually, I'll I'll tell the the audience a a bit about how we got connected. That was through one of your students, who was also a fellow classmate of mine uh, last year. And she actually mentioned that you taught a lesson about NFTs in one of your finance classes at Schulich School of Business. And uh, full disclosure for the audience, again, I'm an alumni of of Schulich School of Business, so uh, go Schuligans. So pleasure to have you here. Uh, you know, talking about some of the, the, the topics that are discussed in, in classes, uh, but I'm wondering if, if you can give the uh, also as, as part of this introduction, if you can give the audience some uh, maybe a bit of a brief summary of uh, some of what you taught in that class around NFTs.
1: Uh, and by the way, I want to say that I'm deeply flattered that students remember the material <laughs> that, that I teach. I, I think this is one of the biggest rewards that you can receive as a lecturer is that students remember something from your class going forward, not just for the exam, but going forward. So I'm, uh, th- this is already a big uh, compliment <laughs> to me. <laughs> Amazing, excellent. Uh, so I teach uh, standards, basic, a finance introductory classes that are supposed to introduce uh, Schulich students to the main theories, to the main concepts that are used in finance. I think this is a, well, obviously I'm very biased, but I think this is an important course to take regardless of your background. You don't need to be a finance specialist. You don't need to be an entrepreneur to appreciate finance. A lot of what we teach uh, and and what, a lot of what I cover in particular relates to personal decision-making and can help people in the long, ter- long term to better manage their finance and achieve their goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, having said that, I am aware of that sometimes, you know, when you cover just standard textbook concepts, when you go over PowerPoints, it's it may be a little bit dry, especially given the fact that finance tends tend to be a little bit more quantitative compared to other disciplines that are taught uh, in business schools and Shurek in particular. And as a result to make things relevant to students, I typically try to introduce new trends and see how the concepts the standard concepts that we cover apply to those new trends. Uh, because another thing that oftentimes happens is that students and uh, students are skeptical a little bit about the material that they cover because they consider it a little bit too abstract and too theoretical and if, this is justifiably so and as a result I put a lot of effort into trying to convince them that those tools that uh, that we cover are actually quite universal and they can apply first of all they are applicable in real world finance professionals okay. do use them and those are the things that you can use going forward to apply to new areas that are being developed and I think NFTs is one of those examples. this is a new trend. It is very interesting, in particular, to younger generations, millennials, Gen Z. And we can still think of how we can use standard tools to evaluate NFTs. And so this is the angle that I essentially introduced to my students. I encourage them to discuss uh, whether they believe NFTs, whether they don't believe them, how they would value them, given the valuation tools that we have covered, and how they think it could be applicable to investment decisions. And uh, we have a spectrum of quite uh, diverse opinions. Some people were very uh, skeptical about the future NFTs. Some were excited. Some were already buying them. Uh, but I think yeah. all together, I think it helps students uh, uh, relate uh, the dry finance material better to the real world and as well as, uh, and essentially introduce them to those new developing areas that some of them may not be aware of.
0: Yeah, that's great. I, I think that, that that's a pretty cool concept, especially for students who are learning this for the first time. I, I do remember my finance 101 course, and I do wish that we had a bit more of um, the practical examples like like you were uh, you're you're sharing with your students. But please uh, continue.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is typical. This is the usual comments that I get. More more applicable, more practical examples. So this way, the material sinks better, and also it becomes more tangible, more relatable
0: so uh so in terms of um, I, I I guess that the, the next question that that I have that immediately comes to mind is what how did you wait because you you, told me that your interest in crypto isn't necessarily personal it's more from um, a, a research perspective um, and so I'm wondering how did you initially get into and uh, get involved with with crypto in, in the first place I
1: this is a a great question and as i was uh, preparing for this podcast i was trying to think of the first time i heard about cryptocurrencies probably bitcoin would be the first Uh, i couldn't to be honest i couldn't remember what Mm -hmm. i did remember though was that i definitely started uh, putting more emphasis on uh, trying to follow this research when uh, the financial industry has developed something that's called ICOs, initial coin offerings. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure whether you have already covered those concepts in your previous podcasts, but if not, I can say a few words about
0: it. Sure. Go ahead, please. Yeah.
1: So initial coin offering, it's a interesting way for companies, startups in particular to raise, to raise capital. And the way they do it is essentially by issuing tokens that could be thought of as shares, company shares, but it's it's not limited to that. It can be company products, it can be sort of part of uh, Mm -hmm. licensing, it can be a coupon, uh, those, uh, those sort of things. And in return, they receive capital, which typically comes in form of one of the cryptocurrencies. So essentially the ICO process, what's cool about it is that it's quite parallel to the process of initial public offering or the way Regular companies go public and become traded on centralized uh, stock exchanges. So there is, so before that, it used to be an entity of unclear value. After that, essentially they're willing to share through this process. The company is willing to share some of its value with shareholders and in turn, they receive capital that allows company to continue forward. So what I, I found interesting about ICOs is essentially parallel to uh, IPO in many senses. However, it is particularly tailored to startups that, first of all, uh, operate in in the digital world. As a result, their products can be easily shared with shareholders that can be uh, scattered around the world. Second, Mm -hmm. they use uh, cryptocurrency, which, again, is taking taking advantage of this uh, new trend. And third, is able to raise capital and uh, continue investing. So this was probably what particularly triggered my interest
0: in this space. Oh, I see, okay, and do, do you remember how long ago this was?
1: Uh, research on ICOs, so at least the papers that uh, came to my attention, uh, probably started evolving about, I would say, three years ago, three, four years ago with more sort of okay. tangible papers that do a more organized data analysis and provide some implications the way research likes to do that, right? We like to be very thorough and analyze big databases before we are confident enough in making conclusions. Yep. Um, so those more developed papers I started seeing probably a couple of years ago. And I also yeah, started so... being exposed to them at conferences, which is also typically a sign that uh, a research project is a mature enough stage to be presented to the audience with clear implications and receive their feedback.
0: Oh, that that's... Um... A pretty cool direction to, to, to take the conversation for a little bit so you you started doing the research of, of seeing the research maybe about four years ago I think that's like around the 2017 Bitcoin bull run the, the last one or the two runs ago right. um, but but then it started popping up in, in conferences as well that, that that's pretty interesting from from an academic perspective. Uh, one of the things that I hope the audience is able to get out of this, um, is that crypto isn't just sort of happening on, on the side of, of people's desks. It's not just like, a, maybe a lot of people like to call it a hustle. Um, but I, I like to point out to them that, you know, it, it's definitely has its place in, in, in mainstream as well. And, um, maybe you can tell us a bit more of, of sort of what was sort of the, the types of conversations that were happening in these uh, conferences in, in which um, Bitcoin and crypto and, and ICOs were, were being brought up?
1: Well, what uh, you're absolutely right, uh, saying that the whole idea of FinTech and digital world has become a main part of uh, finance conferences. So I, personally, I do research in a somewhat different field. I, I um, I specialize in empirical corporate finance. I'm trying to see how firms make investment and financing decisions. However, Mm -hmm. having said that, when I submit to conferences and there is always a checkbox of topics to which your paper relates, fintech is always a part of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fintech, sometimes it's called uh, blockchain technology. Yeah, and there are also panels organized. So again, since this is not my direct area of expertise whenever i go to a conference and there are several sessions in parallel i probably have to go to something uh, to something more related to what i'm doing having said that uh, many conference con- conferences tend to organize general panels where the discussion of fintech uh icos uh, takes place and cryptocurrencies also
0: okay all right great uh, well, I, I think we can both agree on the fact that I don't think we just did agree on the fact that you know blockchain and crypto is becoming more mm-hmm. mainstream. but but I'll I'll also give give this and say that there's a lot of hype around crypto uh, around the crypto space as well. And uh, so during our conversation offline, uh, you made a really interesting statement uh, where you compared, nfts to the Dutch tulip bubble of uh, 1637 and uh, that analogy was really fascinating for me the the Dutch tulip bubble is something that I learned about in schulich um, but maybe can you explain it to the audience um, how the how do nfts possibly compare to, to that bubble
1: uh, absolutely uh, nfts I feel have a lot of features that uh, are similar in some extent to how this uh, tulip bubble have has involved and just a bit of a historical background. Uh, in that regard, the tulip bubble has uh, developed in uh, in Holland in the 17th century. So just a right. bit of a broader concept. Back then, uh, Holland and the neighboring Belgium were essentially the hubs, the, the centers of the world trade, simply due to the fact that they had access to sea. They had a lot of ports. And back then, this was the new technology, which I think is already first parallel to our world, similar to how new, uh, how trade evolves around new technological developments, which in today's day is the technology of making everything digital. Mm -hmm. Back then, it was the technology evolved around sea transportation. Mm -hmm. So this is already, I think, uh, first sort of cute parallel. Uh, second, by the way, another side fact that some of your listeners may find interesting: uh, Antwerp, city in Ho- in uh, Belgium, is the yeah. first uh, is considered the first city where st- the first stock exchange uh, was set up. So oh. this is just another uh, cute fact that helps you understand like how important uh, uh, those two countries were on the global scene back then. Now, what happened specifically with tulips is that, again, this advancement in technology that allowed goods to travel faster also helped introduce tulips to Holland. And uh, due to their uniqueness, they have become uh, of high demand to aristocracy. Now, what happened next is that due to high demand to aristocracy, it also received a certain prestige status. And as a result, not just aristocrats, but other wealthy people think merchants became interested in uh, possessing uh, those, uh, th- those unique flowers, which, mm-hmm. if you think about it, further increased the demand for the tulips. Since then, okay. since uh, prices started increasing so fast, other people completely unrelated to finance and potentially even not, uh, even those who did not have money of their own to invest decided that this would be a profitable trading strategy. So people abandoned their uh, uh, main, mainstream occupation in order to get engaged in tulip trades. Mm-hmm. Uh, moreover, they did something that people sometimes, uh, not, not sometimes actually, quite often do these days, is that essentially to purchase something not with your own money, but rather with money that you borrow with the idea that you will make profits in the future and will be able to return, uh, to return the loan. Right. This, this mm-hmm. is what's called leveraged uh, transaction. And we oftentimes, like this. if you think about it, mortgages these days work this way. Uh, but this is a great way to make money if the transaction goes the way you expect. But it's a terrible way uh, to invest if you invest in something risky. Because this way, mm-hmm. not only we are talking about your own money that you lose, you, you essentially have a loan to return. And this is how mm-hmm. the tulip uh, bubble, bubble uh, eventually collapsed. Uh, what happened is that over a fast uh, period of time, prices of tulips have become so high that no one could afford them. And as a result, it uh, reduced, it put some downward pressure on the prices. But automatically, it had this uh, cascading effect because people who were counting on profiting from it and returning the loans um, went bankrupt and could not longer do that. Uh, As a result, this bubble has eventually collapsed and uh, there is, uh, I think, still historical debate as to to what extent it has impacted the the economic environment of Holland in general. Uh, Some say that it might have been exaggerated, but I think even if it has, I think it still provides an interesting lesson as to how a subjectively determined price of an item can essentially be uh, potentially problematic. I, I, and, and this is why I see a lot of parallels with NFTs. I don't see, they do have to, uh, don't get me wrong, I don't think that they don't have true value, they do. And so, by the way, mm-hmm. tulips, if we consider, think of Holland today, probably when you think of uh, Netherlands, the first association that comes to your mind, or one of the first ones is tulips, right? It mm-hmm. is still the world center of growing tulips. Um, and this is still their specialty, However, what this uh, bubble has done is sort of adjusted the price, kind of brought everyone back to reality. And as a result, it had allowed markets to continue in its natural way where tulips are traded for their fair value. So I think that there are some signs that NFTs are also have, may also have some elements that are, uh, that stem from disproportionate interest or hype, as you say. And yeah. that may go away, right? The fact that people uh, create NFTs essentially based on their, I don't know, children's drawing or let's say someone, pe- uh, there are those cases where people intentionally create NFTs, which is essentially, I don't know, a word document that says uh, this NFT is worth nothing and you're an idiot because you buy it and mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. this <laughs> item sells for, yeah. the, for a, a fairly high price. I think those, um, those are signs that... Right now, NFTs may not be traded uh, at a fair value, and, and there is a certain hype that may eventually go away. However, I do believe that there is a certain value, long-term value that is there to stay.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree with you and and making the differentiation between like uh, short-term gains and and, and long-term value yeah, for for sure. Some some of the NFTs you see today are definitely not very sophisticated, and, uh, it, and not you can tell like not a lot of. Thought has necessarily gone into it. Um, I, I sort of think that way about like the the programmatic designs um, that just sort of have like computer models and algorithms spitting out images. Uh, it, it seems pretty cool, but I think at the end of the day, it, it it loses some of the sort of artistic integrity that we come to expect from from digital art. And, uh, and hopefully there's an opportunity to sort of move back in that direction as, as more and more artists um, come into the field. It's pretty interesting to sort of the, the research lens that, that you're taking to, to NFTs. The other interesting thing that you mentioned to me was about the, how the, the crypto movement in general was sort of giving us this opportunity to reimagine what the financial landscape Is going to look like five, ten, even even twenty years from now, and I imagine some of that is sort of from taking these historical analogies and 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 trying to trying to um, see whether or not they they hold true in 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 today's culture. Um, And so I'm wondering uh, for you know we we have a a bunch of digital entrepreneurs uh, who are here who, who who are in the audience. And we're all sort of like looking for the, the the next edge. And I'm wondering from your perspective as a as a researcher, um, and with your understanding of, of the research that's around finance and around cryptocurrencies, do you have a perspective as a researcher on what we can expect from the crypto slash finance industry in the next five years, just based on sort of the, the, the things that, that you've been researching and seeing?
1: I think that uh, the next 5, 10, or even 20 years in finance will look very interesting. And my view on uh, crypto is more as a way to make the blockchain technology accessible and to make it widespread. Because I think uh, when I think specifically about crypto, I think it has a lot of potential, but it also has yeah. still, I feel a lot of obstacles ahead because There are quite a few regulatory barriers. There is, uh, as a currency, right, an important underlying element is the trust system. Think of U.S. dollars. We know that even with the inflationary pressure today, U.S. is not going to be printing money like crazy uh, to 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 make it even worse. Uh, And in fact, we know that every announcement that that the the Fed is making, they're going to stick to that. That's why. Uh, why uh, that's the reason why markets uh, always so look forward to those announcements because we have a certain trust, right. trust system right And note that uh, let's say. US monetary system we, we have abandoned uh, gold standards almost 100 years ago so as a result it's mm-hmm. not backed by any uh, by anything that relies on the system of, of trust. This is what makes yeah. currency valuable. I think that cryptocurrency, is in the process of gaining this trust. As a result, this is the reason why, let's say, every time Elon Musk tweets about, you know, him adopting uh, Bitcoin or him uh, adopting uh, Dogecoin, uh, prices react, uh, re- react so um, so significantly to that because it tells them a lot about the overall trust system and the spread of this trust systems among market participants. So that's what I think. The main challenge for the crypto uh, currency is going forward. But once they're able to overcome that, I think it can provide a lot of benefits. But more generally to the finance, uh, to the finance field, what I want to mention is that crypto is based on blockchain technology. And I think that's what make, what can make finance world in the future more unique. In addition to that, I think if you think about it even more broadly, the advancement, the recent, uh, advancement in technology as we know it, such as, let's say, introduction of uh, artificial intelligence, can further take the finance profession forward. So in my mind, it will be a combination of prevalence of uh, blockchain and uh, additional applications of blockchain technology, as well as applications, uh, additional applications of AI. So altogether, I think they're able to change the finance world. We will have more of interesting assets such as NFTs. I'm sure that other new classes of assets will, will essentially evolve as a result of that. So I think our life as investors will be more interesting, we'll be able to choose among a larger number of security classes. Uh, our life as investors will become also easy because it will be easier to conduct transactions. Uh, we already know how, how easy it is to trade on platforms such as, let's say, well simple or Quest Trade. Which prior to mm-hmm. that were not accessible to small investors. Now, with the help of those technology, we can trade ourselves. And this, and I think this is an important development because it makes the finance world more democratic. You know, no, you no longer need to wait till you accumulate a million and a half of your banking account so that someone from the bank will both at talking to you and, and giving you some financial advices. You can do some of them yourself. Or if you don't know what to do, you can simply outsource it by using simple investment algorithms that those platforms provide, you can uh, you can actually create quite decent and effective asset allocation that can uh, generate you value in the long run. So from the standpoint of investors, I think our life uh, will be better because especially to the small investors, it will be more fair, it will be more democratic, you will get better access to information. Social platforms is another way, I think it's another important trend that's going on right now. Again, we don't need, uh, We no longer need to rely on financial analysts and buy uh, their reports for enormous amount of money to think, uh, to understand what uh, other investors think about a certain company going forward. You can simply go. You know, you can go on Reddit. There are a lot of uh, chats about that. And what's interesting is that oftentimes they're correct. And sometimes, as we saw with the case of uh, GameStop, even more correct than professional investors. So I think that uh, those developments mm-hmm. can provide a lot of opportunity. Um, yep. I can also talk about what I think about financial uh, people who are interested in working finance. I can talk about entrepreneurs, but I don't know, but you're the one who are managing time, so let me know.
0: Oh, oh sure. Uh, well, there the are two topics that, that you said that I'd, I'd love to pick up on. The, the first one is about uh, around trust. Um, so I think it's interesting that the crypto community has really made identity and uh, KYC, m- m- whether it's to regulation or, or just to the, the will of the community, they've made KYC one of the, the pillars of the community. And that in itself leads to identity and I think also connected to trust. Uh, one of the examples I use is the um, hip-hop celebrity, hip-hop star, the rapper uh, Snoop Dogg, recently revealed that he's... Um, a massive holder of NFTs and and he revealed which of the NFT collections was his. And I think we all sort of knew that that collection existed and, and it had like a pseudonym name that was attached to it. But now knowing who the person is behind it gives a lot of credibility because now we know the identity of this person and the person who's uh, who's buying these nfts and what are they interested in it and, and the the conversations that he's having in the space now seem a bit more legitimate than before because we know that that he he's a major investor and uh, and so that idea of of being able to to trust um, the persons who are in this community and, and making these decisions, I think is something that's definitely built into crypto and, and NFT in ways that it isn't necessarily built into traditional finance. Um, so like when you go to the banking and you get some advice from someone, you don't necessarily know like um, how well invested is, is this person? How, how long have they been doing this? uh there there's, you know it there's a lot of questions that you may have coming out of of a meeting like that but i think in, in crypto it it's a bit more clear a bit more easier to to get the information on someone's background when you're, and you're having these conversations with them the other thing that i wanted to pick up on is ai and this is really a, a question about the, the use of ai to democratize finance in my mind Sort of the reason why the investment industry works is because there are a few people with a lot of information and they're able to use that information to their advantage. And then, of course, it's sort of like almost like a rising tide raises our boats that they are the other people who sort of come along because they're able to, to see those actions and, and follow suit with AI when everyone sort of has the opportunity most people more people have the opportunity to figure out um, these the decision making points on their own. Does that not negatively affect the market as a whole with there, there are more people with with that wealth of information?
1: you' are asking a fantastic question uh, in the research community would we'll probably uh, uh, rephrase this question as a question of what happened? What is the market equilibrium? <laughs> but going back okay. to the, to the, to the, uh, to the more like uh, terms that, uh, uh, your listeners may be more familiar with is that you're absolutely right that when people generate information and when they trade on it, it eventually ends up being incorporated in the stock prices, right? So mm-hmm. if I, if there is a group of people that think that, stock A is undervalued and they put money in it and they put a lot of money in it, what will end up happening is that there will be a price pressure, but again, a, a, a economically justifiable price pressure as opposed to, let's say, a tulip example that we have discussed some time ago, which will essentially make the prices converge to the fair value. And once a, a student has asked me a very simple, but I think an, an amazing question. So is it good or is it bad? When, when, when the price is of securities are fair, right? And I think it depends on which side of the transaction you are, right? I mean, if there are unfair, if something is inflated and you're selling it, obviously you're in a great situation and and, uh, the same vice versa. But I think at the end of the day, in in the long run, when things are fair, everyone benefits. Because Mm -hmm. when things are fair, you don't need to provide additional discount. You don't need to uh, compensate investors for the risk of, you know, being a, a... being wrong simply because uh, someone is more right than you. Okay. So, and another thing, what's important to mention, and I try to emphasize it a lot in my classes is that when prices are fair, it doesn't mean that you cannot make money. It simply means that you are compensated for the risk that you are taking. You are giving your money to someone and this money works for you. Okay. Mm -hmm. You can have it, you know, there are different jobs and some jobs you work harder in some uh, jobs. Uh, things are more relaxed the same with money if you invest them in stocks you're exposed to a certain amount of risk and you invest them in nfts and cryptos you are subject to a much higher level of risk but again this is a trade-off this is a fair trade-off in a a fair world in a fair finance world that you are taking and so you're still making money but you are making money not uh, accidentally you're making money simply because it works for you. It works for the other side that takes this money and puts it for whatever optimal investment they think, and they're sharing with you the reward.
0: Okay, that's great. Well, I'm I'm definitely encouraged by your response. Uh, one of the hallmarks of the crypto community uh, is it's really built, made up of people who are, I'd say, were maybe initially dissatisfied with. Uh, what they see happening in sort of the real world, in the, in the traditional world, and coming together to try to create something new, to reimagine uh, the, the way that finance and, and business can can be used to, to create a more democratic society where we can all sort of live fairly and, and compete fairly. Uh, and it, it makes me feel great to know that from your perspective as a researcher that you do see some merit for this. Um, and, and we're not just sort of out here doing this, uh, you know, in, in, in futility. <laughs> uh, so uh, so th- th- thank you for, for that explanation. But, you know, b- before you wrap up, I think I want to uh, sort of try my best to, to take advantage of some of that research insight that, that you have and you, you shared with us already, definitely proving yourself to be a thought leader in this space. And, and thank you very much for the information you shared already. But I'm, I'm asking this question, I think on behalf of all of our guests who are sort of NFT newbies or new new to crypto, um, you know we have a lot of digital entrepreneurs who so I said are oh, like looking for the next edge, trying to figure out w- what's happening in this space and getting as much information as they can. So I'm wondering, based on your uh, personal experience with, with, with your research, uh, can you share with us? Um, just where do you think the opportunities are in, in crypto and, and in the crypto and NFT space?
1: Uh, this, is a very <laughs> this is a very good question and a bit challenging uh, uh, to answer. You know what, let me, I understand this is obviously uh, the question probably that the audience has been wait, wait, waiting so long, uh, long and patiently for. So overall, I think that the opportunities, and it may be sort of a, a bit of a cheesy answer, but I think that opportunities lie where you believe you can create value. So if you are an entrepreneur, do something that you truly believe in. D- don't do something because it's a hype and you think it will go down and you think you can uh, you can uh, profit from it on the side. Do something that you truly believe has value because if you truly believe in it, it is more likely that it will help uh, it will have value for others and it will continue Having value and in, in increasing in value over the long term. So this is the suggestion that I have. Uh, but overall, I think that there are a lot of opportunities in this uh, space. I think shift NFTs essentially show us the mere existence, the mere evolution shows us that there's a huge demand to shift in things that used to be tangible. Into this uh, online, into this online digital world. So, if you have an idea of how to switch an, a tangible item, a routine task, into something that can exist uh, out there in the online universe, I'm sure that it will create a lot of demand because it seems to me that this is where our where our world is overall shifting. Uh, also, yeah. I think that is, uh, and again, going back to what we said about AI and uh, blockchain technology. Thinking about new products that can potentially incorporate both can be of value. Blockchain has a lot of applications when it comes to making uh, eliminating the middleman, right? Similar to how we talked about, you know, the pla- Quest trade, uh, platform minimizing the role of the middleman and making trade more in uh, finance world more democratic. There are some additional applications. Think mortgages, mm-hmm. it's still a complex process, it takes several months from the time you you uh, signed the contract and until, until you close. It doesn't have to be that long. It was a lot of parties, uh, uh, banks, mm-hmm. real estate agents, uh, lawyers. It doesn't have to be that, uh, that complicated. Things can be simplified, and by eliminating this uh, middleman or essentially by automating those middlemen, we can reduce a lot of those costs, which in first will uh, provide a lot of... Uh, opportunities for entrepreneurs, okay, where you can uh, create a business by reducing costs to financial market participants. And it will, I think, at the end of the day, make the world a better place because investors will not be charged for, the, for those additional uh, transaction fees and will be able to make mm-hmm. transactions cheaper and faster.
0: Yeah. I, I, I like the idea of us sort of moving away from the uh, traditional physical things that, that, that we buy to to a virtual space, to a, a digital and virtualized space. Uh, I think of so we recently had uh, Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Both of those days had reduced revenue or lower than expected revenue, and I, I was thinking to myself, I wonder if they are they are accounting for the digital goods that are being sold, so the NFTs and and the uh, to- crypto tokens that are being bought like uh even um english primarily you know, european football they've they've started issuing tokens to their fans and and i know that they've made several millions of dollars um pepsi and adidas launched their their nfts and these are all just sort of digital um pieces of, of of tech or, or digital assets that, that you can buy and, and interact with these companies um, that have, have really taken off. And, and I don't think they're necessarily accounted for in, in the traditional way. Like if you walk into a store or you use your credit card um, at, at, at Amazon or what have you. And so it seems to me that there's this almost like side uh, society that's being built up and uh, at some point, these two things have to merge. It'll, it'll be pretty, pretty amazing when, when, when they, they do come together. I, I don't know if you, if you have any thoughts at all on sort of what's happening in the uh, what, what, what we're calling Web3 with the, the metaverse and, and virtualization and um, the digitization of, of the real world.
1: Uh, I like. I really like your Black Friday example. I haven't thought about it, but I think this is a f- fantastic example that shows that these days we value not just tangible things, but also uh, things that can be created and transferred in the digital world. Yes, I still don't know how we can account for that. At the end of the day, yes, it should be considered part of the overall say, GDP, the overall production of the economy, and, and it's definitely a way uh, to move things forward as people try to... Start to appreciate more and more things that are digital and not just uh, those that uh, that are tangent. Uh, it will still be probably uh, asymmetric in, this, uh, in terms that probably it's, it appeals more to younger uh, younger generations. I don't know mm-hmm. to what extent your grandma uh, may appreciate an NFT as a Christmas gift. Sure. <laughs> uh, but actually, I think, and this is uh, going back to another idea, making this digital world accessible to older generations. I'm, I, I'm sure that even though if someone's grandma does not know, is not uh, tech savvy, I'm sure she would still appreciate a gift that's uh, uh, that appears in an NFT form and uh, is given to her by one of the, uh, her grandsons or granddaughters. And I think actually mm-hmm. thinking of ways of making the existing technology accessible not just to gen z's but also to our parents and grandparents is yeah. another way uh, in which we can both promote this market and also create uh, new entrepreneurship and investment opportunities
0: mm mm-hmm. yeah I, I agree with you the virgin those generations is key oh, we we saw that happen in with with social media so we started out with mm-hmm. with college kids facebook was only available to you if you had a .edu email address and uh, and now it's two and a half billion people. So so um, we, 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 we've seen that happen before with social media, with, with other pieces of tech. And it's clear that at some point, those, those generations do do merge and, and meet. Uh, but Lena I'm just thrilled and excited that, that you took the opportunity. Uh, you, you, you took us up on our offer to, to join us and share your knowledge and, and research with, with us and, and w- with the audience. I know that there are people who are listening who really enjoyed the conversation and probably want to continue this conversation with you. Um, um, Where could people find you online so that they can connect with you and keep the conversation going?
1: Uh, Sure. So the best place to find me is on the Schulich's website uh, where you can read more about me and my research and my interests. Uh, Mm And it it has some contact information as well. Uh, I'm also available on LinkedIn.
0: Okay, great. And we'll, we'll be sure to include both of those links in the show notes. Uh, so for the audience listening, you can just head over to the episode description and you'll find the link to the Shulik website, as well as the link to, to Lena's, uh, LinkedIn account as well. Uh, so, Lena, thank, thank you once again for, for joining us. We, we appreciate your time. We appreciate your knowledge and everything you shared with us. This has been a, a fantastic conversation and a great way for us to dive even deeper into the idea of of crypto and and nft and of course from a research perspective which is something that i think in in the crypto community we we don't get a lot of uh, because a lot of us are sort of amateurs in the financial space and we're just trying to, to figure it out as we go along so it's been amazing to have you share with us what is happening in your community and and the the sort of the 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 thoughts and ideas that that you all are kicking around and and to be able to to impart that on us i i think is invaluable so thank you very much
1: thank you jay it has been a pleasure too